Mama, madre, or muter. Grandma, auntie, or stepmom. Around the world and throughout our community, there are dozens of names to refer to maternal figures. This Sunday, Mother's Day, we recognize and celebrate those maternal figures in our lives and the contributions of mothers to society. The holiday was first celebrated 112 years ago, but had a rocky start in becoming officially recognized. The first proposal was rejected as the government felt that if they instituted a Mother's Day, they would soon have to introduce a Mother-in-Law's Day too. But just six years after the first unofficial celebration, Mother's Day was officially recognized as a national holiday, and this special day is now observed in more than 40 countries around the world. Today we're celebrating too, as we share books that feature mothers and maternal bonds in their many forms. I'm Serena McDermott, and this is Midtown Bookshelf. This is Midtown Radio, and you're listening to Midtown Bookshelf. I'm Serena McDermott, and I'm here today with Matt Rappelt. Hello. And Allison Dijak. Good morning. This is our special Mother's Day edition of Midtown Bookshelf. And I know, you know we are all teachers here, and unfortunately, we're all out of the classroom. I'm wondering, if you were in the classroom right now, would you folks be celebrating Mother's Day at all, or would you be doing any special activities? Well, I think that for me, it would depend on the grade and age of the students I was teaching. So when I was a full-time teacher last year and the year before, I was a core French teacher who taught predominantly grades four to six. And so it didn't really, we didn't really do a whole lot of celebrating of special occasions. I kind of intentionally didn't do a lot of um, of recognition of Christmas or Easter or Mother's Day or Father's Day, just because um, and on one hand, there's a lot of curriculum to get through, and it's hard sometimes to jump around into different subject matter uh, every month if you're trying to get through a certain unit. And the other reason is because, I mean, you don't, it's, it's really important for me that I'm respectful of everybody who's in the classroom. And I don't always know um, the situations, especially when you're celebrating sort of family holidays like this, you don't always know the, the, the emotions and, and the situations of all the students in your class. So you want to make sure you're respectful of each person's individual environment. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't do anything for it. Um, if I was a grade one or grade two or grade three teacher, I would certainly take the occasion to maybe bring in a picture book about what does it mean to um, have an inclusive Mother's Day or an inclusive Father's Day. But personally, my preference is always to leave those things up to the families and how they would choose to celebrate um, that would just be how I, especially if I'm doing like older grades. For sure. Yeah. I think I am kind of on the same page as Matt. Um, I think it always depends, um, you know, who your group of students are. Um, it's always a really important job of the teacher to get to know your students as much as possible. And so, yeah, I always just base my judgments on, you know, the family backgrounds and what I know about my students. Um, last year, I taught a grade one class part time and we did a little bit of Mother's Day things. You know, it's a lot of the families in my class did recognize it and celebrate it. So so it felt right for me to do a little bit. We made, you know, we we spent 
the Friday afternoon before before the weekend making little cards but it certainly wasn't anything that was like forced upon the kids and and I always really try um, to use intentional language when I'm introducing things like that you know not always saying Mother's Day or not always saying your mom you know saying is there someone special in your life um, that looks after you or is there someone special that um, has has done uh, yeah, just done special things with you and you have that relationship with. So yeah, kind of on the same page as Matt and just really depends who's in your class and and what you know about your students. Yeah, I'm glad that you guys brought up those those ideas. And we do want to recognize for any of our listeners too, um, sometimes people have difficult relationships or difficult feelings around um, mothers and maternal bonds. So we just want to recognize that and honor that too. Uh, and having said that, we are going to share some stories that that showcase some different types of maternal bonds. Now, um, I know that you, Matt and Allison, both have some special people in your life that you'll be celebrating with this year. Um, do you have any special traditions or are you doing anything today to celebrate Mother's Day? Well, I think that um, one of the reasons why I tend to not make a big fuss about um, Mother's Day, Father's Day, those type of holidays in the classroom is because my family has always been pretty low-key about that ourselves. Um, I mean, certainly we have, uh, I can remember when I was growing up, my dad would always get or pick some flowers from the garden for my mom in the morning. Um, We'd always have a little dinner and there would be maybe the occasional gift or two, but nothing really over the top. So I mean, we always just took the day to enjoy it with each other and spend the time, you know, out in the spring air, usually out in the garden. Um, I mean, gardening and Mother's Day, that was, uh, those two things went together for us. So, I mean, nothing too too significant, but it was always just really uh, a nice time to, to spend that time with that person, whether it's your mom or grandma or whoever that maternal figure is in your life. If you can spend time with them, that's the biggest gift of all. Yeah, for me, it's also just kind of a chance to get together. Uh, I have a pretty big family. I have three brothers. So, you know, getting everyone together for a family dinner um, sometimes takes a bit of effort coordinating calendars and everything. So, yeah, Mother's Day was just a chance to get together. And we would always be sure to be the ones cooking the meal for my mom because she always did a lot of the cooking for us growing up. So, you know, treating her just to a nice a nice day to relax and, and spend some time with family as well. So this year, I mean, we're, we're going to be doing a Zoom call and uh, sent my mom an e-card and, you know, just some little things to still connect virtually. Very nice. Well, to kick us off for our um, Mother's Day episode here, I've chosen a really great upbeat song from our Millbrook, Ontario singer, Serena Ryder. She wrote this song for a romantic partner, but I feel the sentiments are still perfect for a maternal relationship. This is What I Wouldn't Do by Serena Ryder. If you should fall to pieces, you know I'll pick them up. There are so many reasons I'm never gonna get enough. If you should leave this country, you know I'll come to you Because you always love 
I Wouldn't Do by Serena Ryder. I'm Allison Dijak, and you're listening to Midtown Bookshelf. Today, we are celebrating Mother's Day by bringing in picture books all about mothers and other maternal figures in our lives. Serena, what book did you bring in today? The book I brought is called A Chair for My Mother. It's a 1983 Caldecott Honor book, and it's written and illustrated by Vera B. Williams. I haven't read this book since my childhood, and I had completely forgotten about it until I stumbled upon it while looking at books for this week. The words came right back to me, and I remembered poring over the pictures, imagining myself in the main character's shoes. I think it's a fitting choice for this week because it showcases a loving relationship between a child and her mother and grandmother, and there's even an appearance from her aunt. It's no surprise that these maternal bonds are so present in the story because Vera Williams actually wrote the book to honor her late mother. I hope you enjoyed the story as much as I do. Here it is. My mother works as a waitress in the Blue Tile Diner. After school sometimes, I go to meet her there. Then her boss, Josephine, gives me a job to do. I wash the salts and peppers and fill the ketchups. One time I peeled all the onions for the onion soup. When I finish, Josephine says, good work, honey and pays me, and every time I put half of my money into the jar. Takes a long time to fill a jar this big. Every day when my mother comes home from work, I take down the jar. My mama empties all her change from the tips out of her purse for me to count. Then we push all the coins into the jar. Sometimes my mama is laughing when she comes home from work. Sometimes she's so tired she falls asleep while I count the money out into piles. Some days she has lots of tips, some days she has only a little. Then she looks worried. But each evening, every single shiny coin goes into the jar. We sit in the kitchen to count the tips. Usually grandma sits with us too. While we count, she likes to hum. Often she has money in her old leather wallet for us. Whenever she gets a good bargain on tomatoes or bananas or something she buys, she puts by the savings and they go into the jar. When we can't get a single other coin into the jar, we are going to take out all the money and go and buy a chair. Yes, a chair. A wonderful, beautiful, fat, soft armchair. We will get one covered in velvet with roses all over it. We're going to get the best chair in the whole world. That is because our old chairs burned up. There was a big fire in our other house. All our chairs burned. So did our sofa and so did everything else. That wasn't such a long time ago. My mother and I had been coming home from buying new shoes. I had new sandals. She had new pumps. We were walking to her house from the bus. We were looking at everyone's tulips. She was saying she liked red tulips, and I was saying I liked yellow ones. Then we came to our block. Right outside our house stood two big fire engines. I could see lots of smoke. Tall orange flames came out of the roof. All the neighbors stood in a bunch across the street. Mama grabbed my hand, and we ran. My Uncle Sandy saw us and ran to us. Mama yelled, where's mother? I yelled, where's my grandma? My Aunt Ida waved and shouted, she's here, she's here, she's okay, don't worry. Grandma was all right. Our cat was safe too, though it took a while to find her. But everything else in our whole house was spoiled. What was left of the house was turned to charcoal and ashes. We went to stay with my mother's sister, Aunt Ida, and Uncle Sandy. Then we were able to move into the apartment downstairs. We painted the walls yellow. The floors were all shiny, empty. The first day we moved in, the neighbors brought pizza and cake and ice cream, and they brought a lot of things too. The family across the street brought a table and three kitchen chairs. 
The very old man next door gave us a bed from when his children were little. My other grandpa brought us his beautiful rug. My mother's older sister, Sally, had made us red and white curtains. Mama's boss, Josephine, brought pots and pans, silverware, and dishes. My cousin brought me her own stuffed bear. Everyone clapped when my grandma made a speech. You are the kindest, the people, she said, and we thank you very, very much. It's lucky we're young and can start all over. That was last year, but we still have no sofa and no big chairs. When mama comes home, her feet hurt. There's no good place for me to take a load off my feet, she says. When grandma wants to sit back and hum and cut up potatoes, she has to get as comfortable as she can on a hard kitchen chair. So that is how come mama brought home the biggest jar she could find at the diner and all the coins started to go into the jar. And with some time, the family fills the jar and the story picks back up with them shopping for chairs. We tried out big chairs and smaller ones, high chairs and low chairs, soft chairs and harder ones. Grandma said she felt like Goldilocks and the three bears trying out all the chairs. I tried out our chair in the back of the truck. Mama wouldn't let me sit there while we drove, but they let me sit in it while they carried it up to the door. We set the chair right beside the window with the red and white curtains. Grandma and Mama and I all sat in it while Aunt Ida took our picture. Now Grandma sits in it and talks with people going by in the daytime. Mama sits down and watches the news on TV when she comes home from her job. After supper, I sit with her and she can reach right up and turn out the light if I fall asleep in her lap. And that is the end of A Chair for My Mother. Well, Serena, actually, that's a book that I didn't, when, when you said the title, I didn't recognize it. But as you started reading the story and as I sort of, you know, as the story progressed, I thought to myself, I've definitely heard this before. And I think it was a read aloud that a teacher read to me like back in grade two, when we were doing a unit, I think it was on like fire safety or something. And I remember the text and I remembered like, you know, the jar of money that they had and trying out the chairs and it all sort of came flooding back to me halfway through. And I remembered how much I really enjoyed that story. So thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, that's a really beautiful story. There's there's so many different layers to it, you know, the relationship with the family, um, obviously, you know, struggling with uh, some money issues as well. And and I think that would be a really interesting one to share with children. I think there's a there's a lot of discussions that could be started with that about you know, just um, different setups of who lives in your house. You know, not everyone has a grandparent that lives in their house, but for some families, it's very common. Um, and yeah, just uh, it's really, really beautiful story. Lots of different ideas going on. Thanks for bringing that one. Yeah, I think as a kid, one of the things I really loved about this book was the idea of how the little girl was able to contribute so much to her family. She also earned money and put it in the jar. And I just love the idea of building up, seeing those coins build up over time, mm -hmm. and then ultimately getting to choose that chair. And in the images, you actually see all these different chairs. So I had a good time you know, looking through them and thinking, which chair would I choose? <laughs> yeah, well, Serena, as uh, as you're saying that now, I can still see some of the patterns. I think that they're just, you know, they're floating back to me from my childhood. It's so funny how big of an impact picture books like that can make on you. Because I haven't mm -hmm. thought about that book in gotta be 20, 20 years, more than that. Yeah. Uh, and I had the exact same 
uh, sense when I was reading it. And, you know, I looked forward to sharing this pick, but I also sort of worried that maybe my memories of the story were coloring my objectivity about the book's quality. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that you guys liked it. Um, I thought, you know, is this book going to be special for our listeners who, who don't have such fond memories of it? And I think that this lack of objectivity in evaluating stories that are special to us, that can make our jobs as teachers or parents who choose books with young readers, that can make it difficult. Um, some books that were cherished in a certain time and place, they aren't as appropriate anymore. So is that something that you've experienced? And, and how have you dealt with that? Yeah, Definitely. <laughs> um, I have this book actually that I adored when I was younger. It's on my bookshelf right now. It's called Puddle Man. And my brother and I read it all the time. It's not a famous book by any means. And we just thought it was such a fantastic book growing up. And then when I became a teenager and worked at summer camp, I brought it uh, in my collection of books to read to campers. Um, and you know what? I read it for my campers and uh, they didn't love it that much. They kind <laughs> of, we read it and they were like, that's nice, you know, and, uh, and yeah, I kind of had that realization. It's like, oh, I mean, maybe this book is a fine book, but maybe it's not quite as special as it is. And, you know, it, it can be really hard to read a book to a group and they just don't appreciate it as much. You know, I think if that ever happens, if, you know, you're reading a book to a class or, or a child and they just don't really, it doesn't click with them as much as it may have for you. Um, I think that even if you can kind of share why it's special for you, they can hopefully see that it, uh, you know, it is important. You know, kids always like to make connections. So if you tell them that this book, you know, was one that you loved reading after playing outside with your brother, for example, like Puddle Man for me, um, they might have a connection to that and that can make them more interested in the telling of the story, even if they don't love the book in general. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that like the context that you hear a story or you read a story is so important when it comes to creating that emotional bond between you and the story. There was one, uh, a book that I had um, growing up called uh, Whatever You Do, Don't Go Near That Canoe by Werner Zimmerman. And it was always a book that I read or was read to me before going to bed. And it's like kind of a pseudo scary story, a, a pseudo scary story. Um, so it's like, you know, it's not really that scary, but like it sort of tries to make you think that it's going to be scary. And I remember I loved that, that about it because whenever I was going to bed, I was like, you know, you just, it's dark outside, it's dark in your room. And, you know, it's almost like you're getting a bit of a ghost story, but then it, it, it ends happily ever after. So I had lots of fond memories of it. And then I brought it into a, a, to read to a grade one class and I introduced it as being like, oh, this is one of my favorite childhood books. Like it means so much to me. And it just didn't have the same effect at all. Like, you know, reading it at like 1.30 PM <laughs> in like a bright classroom with like all these different bright colors around, it just didn't translate the same way. So it's hard for them to grasp why that book would have been so significant for me because um, the context does play a big part of it. But I think also it doesn't mean you shouldn't share those books because when you bring a book in that is important to you, you're going to read it with so much more gravity and you can you know, impart a lot of meaning into it just with the sound of your voice and the expression that you have. So I think even if, it's, even if it doesn't, if you, even if you think it doesn't translate, perfectly or, or the kids don't grasp the book or don't fall in love with it the way that you did 
there still might be one student who does. And there still might be some, there still might be one student who, when they're growing up and they're reading a story to their kid or they're a teacher, they say, oh yeah, this, this book was really, was really important. And it was really uh, amazing when Mr. Rappold or Miss McDermott or Miss Dijak or whoever brought this in and, and said it was their favorite book and they're sort of passing it on. So I, I try to like, you know, even if I'm scared of bringing a book into a class, I still do it anyways, because I want to pass on that, that uh, those books that are meaningful to me. Yeah, I guess one thing that I try to be mindful to with with this idea of objectivity is just thinking about how books may have aged. I think this particular book I brought in has aged really well and still has really beautiful messages. But sometimes books will be sort of a product of their age and they'll have some uh, prejudices or stereotypes in them that aren't really acceptable anymore. Um, that really hit home for me when I was in high school and I volunteered in my little sister's school's library. And the librarian had me pull out a whole bunch of old Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys books. Um, they were actually removing them from the library. And at the time I thought, oh, what a travesty, like classic books being pulled out. But the librarian explained and said, you know, that some of the language and ideas in these books, um, they're great for kids who have some guidance and who are learning from an older reader about how to interpret those. But for a kid just picking it up off the shelf on their own, it's not really um, appropriate. They don't know how to how to process those kind of old ideas that are in there. So that's something that I try to keep in mind as well. Yeah, of course, any type of media can always age well or yeah. not. And, uh, you know, it's our job as adults to kind of pick through the different things and decide what what is a good fit to share with kids. So. <laughs> Well, speaking of good fits, I found a band that just seemed like the perfect fit for this Mother's Day episode. The band is Vancouver-based Mother Mother, and I have brought in their song, It's All Right. Stupid things I said, one billion foolish things. I'm not okay. I got a baseball bat beside my bed to fight off what inside my head to fight off what's behind my meds. I'm lonely, lost in pain. It's alright, it's okay, it's alright, it's okay. I don't wanna know I'm not kidding 
made a few mistakes. I'm alright, I'm okay, I'm alright, I'm okay. I'm not gross, I'm just human, and I made a few. It's alright, it's okay, it's alright, it's okay. You're not a demon, there's a reason you behaved in that way. It's alright, it's okay, it's alright, it's okay. And I believe, yes, I believe that you'll see. That was It's All Right by Mother Mother. Welcome back to Midtown Radio. This is Midtown Bookshelf, where we're discussing books on the topic of maternal bonds and maternal figures. I'm here with Matt Rappel, who's about to share a book with us. What book did you bring in, Matt? Yeah, so nowadays, especially during this time of quarantine, um, interacting through text is something that we absolutely take for granted. I mean, it could be text messages, emails, Facebook posts, Instagram comments, Reddit threads. I mean, it's no exaggeration to say that we're likely doing more communicating with our fingers than with our voices. And the book that I brought for you today takes that idea of text-based relations and gives it a lovable, old-school Mother's Day twist. It's, the book is called Away, and it's by Toronto-based writer Emile Scher and illustrated by fellow Torontonian Kin Lang. In a way, the text of the story is constructed completely as a back and forth post-it note conversation between a compassionate mother and an anxious son, Skip, who is fearful about his first visit to overnight camp. And I can relate, I can certainly relate to that story. So this story just feels incredibly raw there's no narration, no third-person storytelling to frame the character's thoughts. And instead, we're given only the character's own words and their handwriting as they scribble down their fearful anxieties from Skip's perspective or the tender, patient reassurance from the mother. Now, given that this picture book is just a conversation, it does rely heavily on the artwork of Kin Lang to bring the world and experiences of Skip and his mom to life. And Lang does a fantastic job with this. I really recommend checking it out because her watercolor illustrations are simply breathtaking and they really do add to the intimacy of this read. However, the story's format does pose a bit of a problem for radio broadcasters who might want to read the book on air. So I'm going to do the best that I can to fully convey the, the story. Uh, but to really do it justice, our listeners will have to uh, hop on to getepic.com purchase the book for themselves, hopefully from a local bookseller, or wait till the libraries are about to reopen. So this book is called Away by Emile Scher, illustrated by Kin Lang. On the first page, we see that Skip has come downstairs in the morning and he is dressed. He's just about to head out to school for the day. There's a note on the fridge that says, good morning, Skip. Your lunch is in the fridge. Let's have one more movie night before you go. And so in the illustrations we see, Skip scribbled two quick notes back. I'm not going ever. And hanging out with Eli after school. The next note we find is posted on the family goldfish bowl. It reads, you won't be gone forever, only two weeks. 
And then Skip responds in his own post-it note, I told Eli I need to borrow his sleeping bag for one night only. And also, we need more milk. We then find a message that says from his mom, I bought you bug spray. Bring your math homework to the laundromat. I quiz, you fold. And the picture on this page shows Skip folding shirts on the laundromat table as his mom goes over his math facts. Two plus two, five. Eight minus six, two. Twelve minus five, seven. On the next page, Skip writes, I can't go away. Lester needs me too much. And Lester, we see from the illustrations, is a chubby brown and white house cat who likes cookies, cheese, and sleeping beside Skip in bed. The next page is just a calendar. We see Sunday, the 21st, is circled, and there are two post-it notes on the page. Lonely Lester and I will have a movie night while you're gone, and Mimsy is visiting next week. On the next page, we find Skip, we, on the next page, Skip's mom finds a note from Skip on her purse. Can't find my Bigfoot t-shirt. And then after she does a quick search of Skip's room, she writes back, Bigfoot last seen under your bed. Be sure to pack more than one t-shirt. I got a B plus in math. I'm not packing, not ever. The next page we see that the calendar is showing Sunday the 14th. There's a picture of scissors and a post-it note saying, Mom arrives at 2.35. It's exactly one week until the circled day. More sticky notes. Mimsy said you cried when you saw the bus. My hair is way too short. Skip's mom replies, Mimsy is wrong. I loved sleepover camp. Hair grows back. Promise. Mimsy showed me a picture of you, a nine years old you, a crying you holding a suitcase and a fuzzy walrus. The next post-it note says, I remember that walrus. My tears didn't last. My memories are as warm as biscuits. And I'm sure our listeners can guess where that note was found. Besides something delicious, I should say. Skip responds, can I take a picture of you and the walrus? Finally, the calendar shows that it's the 21st, the circled day. The post-it notes have made their way onto the bus to camp, a green, a blue, and a red one. Skip's mom has written, I will miss your hugs. Lester will too. Write to me and Mimsy. So Skip did. He wrote a red, a green, and a yellow post-it note, stuck to a page and sent back to his mom. So far, I have two new friends and 3,217 enemies. And here he's drawn a picture of a mosquito. He writes, next year's goodbye will be easier. And there's one more page to this book, and this page has no words, so I don't wanna spoil Lang's beautiful illustration, but I will say that the page features Skip, his mom, Lester, and of course, a whole bunch of post-it notes. The end. And that's the story Away by Emil Schur. What did you think of that? Were you able to get 
most of the story from how I was able to read it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually found that I listened mostly with my eyes closed so that I could kind of picture the characters evolving in my head and the different places around their house and even picturing maybe what uh, each character's handwriting would look like. So that was a really great book. I had never heard that one before. I really loved the structure of this book. I'm a sucker for books that are written in different styles like this. And uh, you, good on you, Matt, for uh, being so ambitious and trying to bring this one to light on radio for us. I'm really glad you did because I enjoyed it. Good. Yeah, I mean, it is really hard when you're describing illustrations. And I mean, I, my question for you is, I'm wondering what the significance is of the post-it notes. Why do you think the author thought this would be a good way to tell the story? And maybe what does it say about the two protagonists and their relationship? Um, I think that to me, writing the little notes back and forth is like a nice little special bond that Skip and his mom have. You know, to me, writing little notes back and forth to someone is always almost like this little secret that you have together. You know, it's really intimate shared experience of you know writing little notes and and choosing special places where you want to put them that you know the other person is going to see them and find them so I think that you were right in introducing the book you said it was a really raw look at their relationship and to me that's exactly what the posty notes did they just kind of gave us this inside look into this mother and son's relationship Yeah, Allison, I think you captured it really well when you said that this is really about showing the most intimate aspects of this relationship. Because on a post-it note, there's so much that goes without saying. And I think you're um, sort of leaving it to the reader to be able to read between those lines and pick up on those um, extra special messages that are, are not fully written. I also think just from a practical standpoint, this is a really nice book because you're conveying a very deep Um, and rich story without a lot of text. And that's great for a lot of readers who are still improving their reading ability or their reading endurance to be able to experience a really rich story like this without having to expend so much effort on the actual reading itself is really um, a great aspect of this book. Mm -hmm. This might actually be kind of a fun prompt to maybe take with uh, maybe people that have children at home right now. Um, A really fun way to encourage more writing is, you know, doing little notes back and forth because sometimes kids can be resistant to doing writing if, you know, it's just a prompt for school that they have to do a journal entry. But when there's a purpose, um, like writing secret notes back and forth to a friend or a parent or caregiver, um, you know, that can be something really fun. So, you know, maybe sharing this book together and then leaving some notes around the house that you and your child can write back and forth. That might be something fun to do while, while everyone is stuck at home. Yeah, absolutely. I, so one of the things that I thought with this book is I, I agree, Allison and Serena, 100% that it is this heartfelt relationship and you're able to sort of see that through the post-it notes. But I also got to thinking that there is um, something about the fact that Skip and his mom have to communicate by post-it notes that I think is also this subtle indictment of the way our society is right now. There's sort of like a socioeconomic or like class analysis you could take with this book where, you know, Skip and his mom or his mom is it has to leave for work 
before Skip's, Skip gets up in the morning. So has to write a note saying, oh, your lunch is in the fridge um, and, and, and isn't able to tell him that or, or give him his lunch in person. And they just aren't or they have to, you know, they have to do their math facts while they're folding laundry at the laundromat. And I think there is sort of like it's this, it is a beautiful relationship that they have. But I think also it goes a little bit deeper and um, acts as sort of a criticism of the society that we have um, right now where there's not a, a whole lot of time for person-to-person conversations. And especially if you're a single mom with a, a young child, that demands a lot of, of time uh, that you have to spend outside of your house and outside of actually interacting with your child. So I, I thought that was an interesting dynamic as well, a sort of a bit of a... Um, uh, a, bit, a bit of a, uh, I mean, a, a darker side or a sadder side to the relationship, but is but is portrayed so beautifully by the author and the illustrator. Yeah, I think similar to Serena's book, there's definitely a lot of layers in this. You know, there's kind of the major story, but then the undertones as well that um, could be some of those larger discussions that you start having with children. Really great. Thanks, sir. Thanks so much for bringing in that book, Matt. It was really, really neat. Um, did you bring in a song today to go with it? I did. And because we're celebrating mothers and maternal figures, I wanted to bring in a song uh, by a Canadian band that has three amazing female singer-songwriters. I saw this band live a few years ago when they were touring across Ontario. And I remember the singer Caroline Brooks saying that she wrote this song to sum up the feelings that she felt the first night that she had it, uh, her, her child back in, uh, in her house. And uh, the song is called Into the Dark by the Good Lovelies.
That was Into the Dark by The Good Lovelies. This is Midtown Bookshelf here on Midtown Radio. Allison Dijak has brought in a book for us that celebrates our theme of Mother's Day. What book have you brought in, Allison? So I've brought in one of my most beloved books about a mother and child relationship, Love You Forever by Robert Munch. Now, although this book differs from Robert Munch's typical style of zany characters that end up in ridiculous, out-of-this-world situations, uh, it is actually one of his most popular books to date, selling over 15 million copies worldwide. Now, I didn't realize this, but when Robert Munch first wrote this story, his regular publisher actually insisted that it was not a kid's book, so they did not want to publish it. So he actually went with a different publisher to release this book. And I'm very glad he did because this is a book that has become very special to me. Uh, I grew up with my mom reading this book to me relatively often as Robert Munch was a favorite of ours. But it wasn't until we went to one of his shows when we learned the melody of the song that runs throughout this book that it became even more special. As I loved singing with my mom when I was younger, this book became a staple of our bedtime routine, singing the song together many nights. And today I'm lucky enough to actually have with me my own copy of the book, so I don't have to read online today. It's the copy that my mom bought me probably almost 20 years ago. So this is Love You Forever, written by Robert Munch, illustrated by Sheila McGraw. A mother held her new baby and very slowly rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she held him, she sang, I love you forever, I like you for always, as long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. The baby grew. He grew and he grew and he grew. He grew until he was two years old and he ran all around the house. He pulled all the books off the shelves, he pulled all the food out of the refrigerator, and he took his mother's watch and flushed it down the toilet. Sometimes his mother would say, this kid is driving me crazy. But at nighttime, when that two-year-old was quiet, she opened the door to his room crawled across the floor, looked up over the side of his bed. And if he was really asleep, she picked him up and rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. While she rocked him, she sang, I love you forever, I like you for always, as long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. The little boy grew. He grew and he grew and he grew. He grew until he was nine years old. And he never wanted to come in for dinner. He never wanted to take a bath. And when grandma visited, he always said bad words. Sometimes his mother wanted to sell him to the zoo. But at nighttime, when he was asleep, 
the mother quietly opened the door to his room, crawled across the floor, and looked up over the side of the bed. If he was really asleep, she picked up that nine-year-old boy and rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she rocked him, she sang, I'll love you forever, I'll like you for always, as long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. The boy grew. He grew and he grew and he grew. He grew until he was a teenager. He had strange friends and he wore strange clothes. And he listened to strange music. Sometimes the mother felt like she was in a zoo. But at night, when that teenager was asleep, the mother opened the door to his room, crawled across the floor, and looked up over the side of the bed. If he was really asleep, she picked up that great big boy and rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. While she rocked him, she sang, I'll love you forever, I'll like you for always, as long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. That teenager grew. He grew and he grew and he grew. He grew until he was a grown-up man. He left home and got a house across town. But sometimes, on dark nights, the mother got into her car and drove across town. If all the lights in her son's house were out, she opened his bedroom window, crawled across the floor, and looked up over the side of his bed. If that great big man was really asleep, she picked him up and rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she rocked him, she sang, I'll love you forever, I'll like you for always, as long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. Well, that mother, she got older. She got older and older and older. One day she called up her son and said, you'd better come see me because I'm very old and sick. So her son came to see her. When he came in the door, she tried to sing the song. She sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. But she couldn't finish because she was too old and sick. The son went to his mother. He picked her up and rocked her back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And he sang this song. I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my mommy you'll be. When the sun came home that night, he stood for a long time at the top of the stairs. Then he went into the room where his very new baby daughter was sleeping. He picked her up in his arms and very slowly rocked her back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. 
and while he rocked her, he sang. I'll love you forever, I'll like you for always, as long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. The end. <laughs> Thank you, Allison. And the singing, what a beautiful addition. <laughs> Thanks. Just the way that my mom and I would always do it when we were younger. <laughs> I've got my daughter sitting here with me and she was listening in and definitely lots of smiles hearing your voice. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. Yeah, I haven't heard the actual melody of that before yet. Um, that, that was real, a real treat to hear the, the, the Robert Munch melody. Um, part of, of the story yeah he always says that you know there's no wrong way to sing the song and and he always wants to hear other people's versions but yeah that was that was how he sang it when my mom and I heard him live when we were younger and so it always has just stuck in my head and you know I think that song really really pulls at a lot of heartstrings uh, that he's written throughout the story but I was thinking that you know this song really symbolizes a tradition that's being shared throughout a lifetime and passed on to the next generation at the end of this book. I'm wondering, Matt and Serena, do you have any traditions with family members that have followed you into adulthood or maybe Serena, any that you've begun to pass on to your, your daughter? Um, well, I would say that my family is, I mean, we have lots of different traditions that we try to pass on. I mean, that's something that um, sort of I've always really, I've always really enjoyed about our family is how we respect different traditions. And I mean, I've talked before on the program about how our family, the Rappolt side of the family, um, we get together every spring in late February and early March to make maple syrup. And it's something that has gone way beyond just the act of making maple syrup. I mean, what the, the special part of it is us all getting together um, to celebrate spring and to you know, chat and, and talk together and reconnect. And I mean, that's what great traditions are about. Like great traditions are about um, highlighting and celebrating the bonds that you share with certain people. And I mean, friends can have good traditions and families can have good traditions, but behind the tradition itself is what it symbolizes, which is a strong relationship. And so when you're honoring a tradition or passing it on, really you're honoring that relationship and strengthening it every time you do that tradition. It's funny being a new parent because I think you realize how much the traditions and the the ways of doing things that your parents had influence and are the model for how you parent yourself. Um, so I think for me, when I was reflecting on this question, I was just realizing how many small things, yeah, <laughs> how many small things um, are influenced by my parents. So for instance, like just the way that my mom would always call us darling and kiss our forehead, that's, that was like a special name reserved just for us. And I find myself doing that with my daughter too, even just unconsciously. Thank you so much, Allison, for bringing in that special book. Did you have a, a song to pair with it? Yeah, so when we decided on the topic of Mother's Day, I actually had an artist that immediately jumped into my head. Um, Jen Grant is a brilliant singer-songwriter from Nova Scotia who recently became a mother as well. And this past year, Jen Grant released a song based on her reflections about motherhood. And coincidentally, when looking into this song, 
I stumbled upon a review that was too perfect not to mention. It said, The song is as sweet as can be. It's like a lyrical version of Robert Munch's book, Love You Forever, in that it echoes backwards and forwards through time, full of joys and responsibilities and all the implications a child brings into the world with it. So this is Happy Birthday Baby by Jen Grant. Enjoy. Happy Birthday Baby by Jen Grant. You've been listening to Midtown Bookshelf on Midtown Radio. You heard me, Serena McDermott, read A Chair for My Mother by Vera B. Williams. You heard Matt Rappelt read Away by Emil Schur, illustrated by Kin Lang. And you heard Alice and I, Jack, share 
Love You Forever, written by Robert Munch, illustrated by Sheila McGraw. Thank you for listening and tune in next week at the same time for a new episode of Midtown Bookshelf. Until then, keep reading. Ooh.